And I think that's all I'm going to share with you today. Because I want to get on to the Sermon on the Mount, but I do want to say, if you were not here last weekend, Don did a great job. Um, I, I, I texted him after. I said, Don, I think that's the best sermon you've ever done. Um, and it wasn't just his delivery. Like, Don, you know, he, he's, he's kind of a showman. He can deliver. Um, it, was, it was what he said that I felt like was so powerful and such a, a beautiful illustration of what the real meaning of being salt and light in the world is. Um, where it's not just that we preserve, it's not just that we flavor, uh, but we are literally, we, we should live lives that prepare the soil for the, for the gospel to grow in others. And I'm not sure that, that we are often viewed in that way. Um, and one of those reasons we're going to talk a little bit about today, and I want to carry that on over into our next section, which comes in Matthew chapter 5, um, talking about Jesus fulfilling the law. But before we do that, let me pray with you, and then we're going to dive in. Father, I thank you for, uh, I thank you for those who are here today to come to worship. You are worthy to worship. You are good. You do so many wonderful things in our lives, and you are with us when life also sometimes feels like it's falling apart. Father, I pray that you would speak to us because you desire for us to hear from you. You desire for us to know that you are with us. And so, Father, be with us and speak through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 5. We are still continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount. We're getting into some really good stuff. Um, I will just preface today by no way for me to give this its adequate due. Because we're going to be talking about Jesus fulfilling the law, and this is literally, you could sum up all of the point of Scripture in this little short passage in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to do my very best, but I'm also going to try to show you what this looks like and what this means for us today, not just some theological idea that we need to embrace. So, so far in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been through the Beatitudes, and what we found was that Jesus is really saying, you are blessed. If you are struggling, you are blessed. If you are poor in spirit, you are blessed. If you are meek and you are not exercising your strength to hurt others, uh, you are blessed. And we find if, if we are persecuted because of uh, Jesus, you are blessed. And you are blessed because the kingdom of God is here and it's in front of you because Jesus is ushering in and at the same time, is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, um, you are the salt and the light. There is darkness encompassing the earth, but because you know these truths about God and Jesus and you're following Him, and we as believers today, having the Holy Spirit within us, we dispel darkness. We should dispel darkness where we go. And at the same time, you are fertilizing the soil of people's lives so that the gospel will take root in them and they will look at you and say, that is what I want in my life. I want to experience God in that way. And then we come to this section where Jesus just kind of lays out, this is the whole point of the whole thing, the whole thing. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom 
of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot of places we can go with this. And there's no way to talk about all of them, but let's, let's very quickly hit the broad strokes and then let's dive in and see what this means for us today. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm not here to do away with the Old Testament. Specifically for them, the law is going to be the Torah, it's going to be the Ten Commandments, but in the broader scheme for them, the law is the first five books of the Old Testament, which is the Torah. And Jesus is saying right off the bat, the law isn't the problem. If it's not the problem, then why did Jesus come and die because the law was insufficient for us? So that's a big question that this would bring. But Jesus is ultimately saying, and this is one of the things we as 21st century Christians have to look back and I, I know in our culture we tend to focus on the red letters, which are incredibly important. That's what we're doing in this series but Jesus never says, ignore the rest of the story, now just worry about this part forward. Instead, Jesus is saying, I'm not here to do this. The law isn't the problem. The second thing he's saying is that I'm here and I fulfill the law. Which can mean a lot of different things. What does it mean that he fulfills the law? Does that mean that Jesus died on the cross and really it doesn't matter now about anything else? Like everybody's saved? Does it mean that it doesn't matter what we do anymore? Or it does matter what we do? Or we have to be just like Jesus? And I don't know about you, when someone says, uh, just be like Jesus. I'm like, well, Jesus walked on water. you know. He, like, he healed the lame. <laughs> you know, whenever he spit in the mud and stuck it on a blind person's face like they could see again. Um, I don't. I don't think my spit can do that. And we sometimes kind of shut down this passage and say, "Well, this is just some big broad thing about saying Jesus fulfills the law," and we chalk that up in our theological box and say, "Okay, Jesus fulfilled the law. Okay, now what? Now what am I supposed to do?" And the reality is, is that's not the way that we read Scripture, and that's not the way that we should read this passage, and that's not what Jesus is trying to say to this group. Of people, the third thing he says is, 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 and through that passage, is how we handle this law matters. How we handle it matters. And the reality is that sometimes we don't handle the law very well. And when we don't handle it well, um, typically what we do is we have reduced the law to a, a number of do's and don'ts. Do the do's, don't do the don'ts. And if you do the don'ts, we're going to be here to point it out and let you know that you did not do the do's. Instead, you did the don'ts. If we're honest, Christians are probably more known to a non-Christian audience as the enforcers against the don'ts. And some of you may even be here because you grew up in a religious system that taught you the do's and the don'ts and then punished you when you did the don'ts, but rarely ever saw the do's. And, and we, we fall into this trap. Everybody falls into this trap when we fail to understand the bigger story and the bigger picture of what God is doing, which cannot be understood solely from Matthew 1 through the end of Revelation. It has to go back all the way to Genesis 1 to understand what God's been doing through Jesus. So this reality that Jesus is saying the law is not the problem, we have to then dive in and say, then what is the problem? 
Well, so what is Jesus trying to accomplish here? And how we handle this really does matter because he, he goes on and he says, um, <clears throat> if you don't handle this well, the kingdom of heaven is not yours. You've got to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And understand, the scribes and the Pharisees did the do's at the right time in the right front of the right people. They didn't do the don'ts at the right time and in the front of the right people. But inside, the do's and the don'ts had not permeated their life. They had missed something in the search to be right and not wrong, to be holy and not unholy, and they missed the whole point. And Jesus is saying, if you don't understand what I'm saying, you will not embrace the kingdom of heaven. And it's not about Him withholding it. It's the fact we don't want it. He's saying, I fulfill the law, and unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, like, it's, not, it's not that I don't want you to have it. Jesus is very clear, I want you to have this. But you won't want it. So we have to dive in. We have to look a little deeper into this. And you, you've probably heard me say, I reference this passage often, you've probably heard me say that Jesus was showing us what it looked like to live out the law. And that is 100% true. He is showing us what it looked like. But we have to be careful even with that summation of it because that also feels a lot like do the do's and don't do the don'ts, right? I mean, Jesus did all the right do's and He never did all the wrong don'ts. So we just need to be more like Jesus. But yeah, Scripture tells us over and over that's impossible. Like, you're, you're not going to be able to do it. Which can make Christianity super frustrating. You'll be perfect, but you'll never be able to do it. What a terrible gospel. What a terrible gospel. Be on point. Never fail. Never mess up. Never misspeak. Always understand correctly. Always act correctly. That is a recipe for frustration and one of the reasons that many people walk away from faith because it feels like it's an impossibility. And we tend to cover over it with, well, Jesus died to make up the difference. And that is true. But I think there's more to it than that. And this is why there are so many facets to this passage. There's no way for us to chase every possible uh, rabbit that we could trace in understanding all of this. We could have a conversation on covenant and promise. But we really don't have time for a conversation on covenant and promise um, today. We could talk about the difference between um, the Spirit and the flesh, but we don't really have time to talk about the Spirit and the flesh today. We could, we could talk about atonement. Jesus' death being an atonement for sin. And, and we have those conversations often. Today I want to peel back and I want to hit a little higher level. And I want you to see on a higher level what uh, really Jesus is saying to us. So what does Jesus fulfilling the law mean to us? Does it mean we give up? Does it mean that we don't um, have to do the do's or the don'ts anymore? It doesn't matter. It's we're just kind of universalist and, 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 and we don't have to sacrifice and we don't have to... You know, we can murder whoever we want now and, and we're still going to heaven. What, what does that mean? And if we're going to do that, we have to go back to the very beginning of the story and understand what happened at the very beginning because if you'll remember for the last few weeks, I've been pointing out 
first three chapters of Genesis is the whole story of Scripture. The whole story is told over and over again. It's told in many different ways. And then Jesus. I mean, this is really the story of all of the Bible. But let's go back. And it begins with the story of two trees. And I'm, I'm going to share some things I'm, I'm also learning. Part of being a believer, doesn't matter how long you've been a believer, is you better always be learning. And so I've been listening um, to a Jewish rabbi. We may, may not uh, agree on all the specifics, and we may not agree on the Messiah. Um, but I have been listening to lots of different people to find out how has my Western culture, my modern understanding, lost what is meant in the Old Testament. So as we look at this, and let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, um, beginning with the verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there are two trees in the garden. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what's the second tree? I say it. I heard it. Tree of life. So there's two trees in the garden. And this is the place in which, and just to catch you up on, on where we are in the story, Eve is not yet uh, in the picture here. Uh, God's speaking to Adam. In, in addition, uh, one of the fundamental changes that I have made in the way that I view humanity, and this may not feel like a big thing to you, but it is a big thing for me, um, over the course of, of my adult life and my adult life as a Christian um, is I grew up in a system that said humanity is bad. Anybody else? Most of us have. We have plenty of proof texts and Bible verses to reinforce that fact. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None are good. No, not one. I, all those things. But if we follow the narrative of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the water and created the vegetation and created animals. And God created Adam and God created Eve. And God said it was not just good. He said it was very good. So one of the, the things I've been wrestling with is how has my expectation of humanity being bad shaped the way I think about God and think about theology, but how I think about myself, how I think about what He has done, and how I relate to people. Because, and, and I think this is one of the problems with the do's and the don'ts thinking of the law, is if I perceive that you are in and of yourself in a default state of bad, it's easy for me to pick out your what you're doing wrong. Yet I have never entered into a lifelong strong relationship with anyone by focusing on their faults. And if you have, you probably both need counseling. <laughs> right? Like, your best friend did not become your best friend by that telling you everything you do wrong. Be my guess. But instead, our default state is very good. It is very good. That is what the Scriptures tell us about humanity. It is very good, but... There is something that enters into this creation that corrupts it and not a single person who has ever lived can escape it. So I'm not saying that you can live a life perfectly without sin as Jesus did. 
But I'm saying we have to look at what God is trying to bring us back to. A place of being very good. Now, where does that all fall apart? This all fall apart in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 3. But I want you to remember this. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 3, and this is where corruption comes in. All right? Because Jesus fulfilling the law is in many ways returning us to this kind of pre-sin state. Not exactly. We can't ignore what has happened. But keep that in your mind, and let's walk through this conversation in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field than the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. What did God say? He said you may eat of any tree in the garden. So right off the bat, we have this really interesting shift that's happening, which is, which is how sin and Satan work. The shift. Did God really say that you um, uh, that you may not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Which is not true, by the way. Because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not in the middle of the garden. The tree of life is. So Satan keeps in this dialogue with her, taking the words of God and twisting and turning them to get her to do something. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now one of the things this this rabbi um, taught which just kind of floored me because I have been saying for a long time that by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what that means is that you now have the ability to, to, to determine good and evil for yourself. But he was saying this, that is not a first century Jewish understanding of that passage. Because the first century understanding of that passage is that Eve already knew the difference between good and evil. Because he says, can you not eat of that? And she knew the difference of what she should do and could do and what she shouldn't do. She knew the difference before she ate of the tree, which it seems very obvious now that, that I, he, he said that. Certainly has not been obvious for the way I've been reading it. And so this fall from becomes actually something different than simply but you just didn't know. Now when I catch my kids, and not my older kids, um, but when they were little, and now still Malia sometimes, and I say, hey, did you do uh, fill in the blank with something they shouldn't have done? Usually the response is, well, I didn't know. 
Right, anybody else? Sometimes we just do this as adults, let's be honest. So, you know, blue lights come on, you pull over, did you know you were speeding? Oh, I did not I did not realize. I thought that it was eighty five miles an hour here. Which we know it's not, but you know, I didn't I did I I didn't know. Maybe a warning since I didn't know, right? That you know you've done it. You know you've done it. This is what we do. But she knew. And the implication is, had she not known, she would not have been held accountable for what she did not know. So why in the world would God have stuck that stupid tree in the garden to begin with? Right? Which makes sense that that would be our argument if the primary way we understand the Gospel is do the do's and don't do the don'ts. You know what? If we just don't have any don'ts, or we can't be held accountable because we don't even know what the don'ts are, then we can live in ignorant bliss. But that's not the story that God's telling. And that's not what God is doing. He's basically saying, and what we find in the Scripture, is that there are two ways to approach life. There is a way to approach through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there's a way to approach through the tree of life. And if you remember the rest of this story, the curse that is then um, pronounced is that you no longer have access to the tree of life because you have chosen the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what is this tree of life that we don't have access to anymore? That's the natural question that comes to me, right? And perhaps that this is the very place in which we understand what Jesus is saying is fulfilling the law. So stick with us. Stick with me. Bruce read um, Proverbs three. It's a great passage on wisdom. And the first verse he read said, "Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding." Verse eighteen says, "She being wisdom." is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Now, lest we say wisdom is the will of God, we certainly cannot say wisdom is not what God is talking about here. And even if we come back to our our traditional understanding of what happened in the garden, there is a way of following God and trusting what He says is good. And there's a way for us to say, yeah, but I like this better. This is the way of humanity. This is the world in which we live today. We can choose whether we listen and obey God. We choose to listen and obey ourselves. And there are blessings and consequences to each of those choices. So where do we go with this? As we look to Genesis chapter 3, what we find is that there are two voices in the garden. We have the voice of God, and He's going to enter into the picture shortly after what we just read, and He's going to ask a question. He's going to say, where are you? And we, we know that we find that you know, just in the very next um, segment of Genesis where Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord and God accepts one and not the other. 
And Cain is so angry, he's going to take his brother's life. And if you'll remember, God walks in after that, that moment of rejecting his offering, and he says, Cain, where are you? Exact same thing he said to Adam and Eve. And then the next thing that he said is so telling. He says, sin is crouching at your door, but you can resist it. So we have this voice telling us to do these things. And I know some of you have other voices in your head. I'm not talking about those. Those are different, right? Medication helps with some of those voices. But we ultimately have these two voices in the garden. We have the voice of God and we have the voice of the serpent. The serpent twisting the words of God, giving different meanings to the words of God, and ultimately trying to convince them that they need to ignore God to get what God is already offering them. Because if you remember, the serpent says, if you eat of this, you will be what? Like God. But we already were. Because we're made in His image. And that was very good. And the serpent comes in and says, yeah, but you're not unless you disobey God. Then you'll be like Him. Which is really how Satan works within our lives. Because if you'll remember, when Jesus went into the desert and He's tempted by Satan, one of the places, he, the, uh, Satan reveals the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you will denounce your Father and you will submit to Me, I will give you all of these kingdoms. But guess what? They're already His. This is often the temptation of sin within our lives is to take that thing that we have and twist it and to corrupt it. And ultimately, the sin becomes our rejection of what God has said because we choose another way. Now that doesn't seem really crazy, does it? I mean, that's kind of how we've understood temptation and sin. But that... That understanding of how this story begins does change what Jesus is saying when I I have come to fulfill the law. So what is the law? It's not just an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. What is the law? Some of them seem obvious. Some of them are things like do not murder, do not covet your neighbor's wife, don't build an idol. I don't have other gods. Um, if an ox falls in a hole in your yard, buy the guy a new ox. You know, some things are, are pretty easy. But then, um, sometimes it's really hard to discern what's right and wrong, isn't it? In many ways, wisdom is elusive to us because we choose to pursue our own truth instead of living by the wisdom of God, which is the mantra of this age. Find your truth. Live your truth. The reality is is that two people can't be in a relationship with each other and live their own truth because their truths are different. If you're married to someone who chooses a different truth than you, how is your marriage going to grow? How is it going to be healthy? If we have a justice system in which you go to court and everybody gets to pick their own truth, how would you ever decide which is real and which is not? 
It is the, the, the wisdom of our age that says there is no truth, but that gives freedom for you to not be bound to the truth of God, but it also creates all kinds of chaos because now there's no way for us to approach each other. Because we decide for ourselves. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Which I think an easy way to say that is simply recognizing that God, God's way is good is the beginning of this wisdom. It's called in the Proverbs the tree of life. God is calling out to us, listen and obey. If we go back and we look at Jesus when He enters into ministry, what is the very first message He gave when He comes on the scene? Repent. Turn back to My ways. For the Kingdom of God is here. Listen and obey. I do believe that the law and what Jesus is talking about and saying, I have fulfilled the law, it's not here to pass away, that the law is the wisdom of God. And that is what Jesus is calling us to pursue, is the wisdom of God. Jesus describes the law in some other ways too. In Matthew chapter 7, later we'll get to the golden rule that says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In chapter 22 of Matthew, Jesus says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we, we have just in those two places, straight from the mouth of Jesus, love God, love others, and do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. That's the whole law. Like you, you take it all, and, and, and even though we have different points of law, there's 611 different laws in the Old Testament. Even though there's 611 laws, they all point to the very same thing. Love God, love others, treat others like you want them to treat you. That's it. That's, that's, that's the point of the law. Now, how do we do that? It, it's easy to boil this down and just to say, we should just love everybody. Right? Let's just love everybody. The problem is, is the way that our culture wants us to love is always on their terms. I want you to love in a way that I feel loved. And now if we're all pursuing our own truth, well, how do I love you? I don't know how you feel loved. That becomes confusing, right? A father withholds his love from his child, and that creates pain. And we would all look at that and say, that's not good. But if that child says, the only way I want love from you is for you to give me another bag of cocaine because I need to get high right now, and you say no, that also creates pain. But we would say that pain is good. So which is it? And that's what seems like a pretty obvious answer, right? What about the ones that aren't obvious? And we just don't know. I don't know how to love in this situation. I don't know what to do in this situation. I I don't know how to be there in this situation. I don't want to mess up. Layer on top of that, our propensity to want to do right by others, and then we fail. And we carry that failure with us everywhere we go. Oh, I did not mean for that to happen. It's like a landmine, isn't it? 
just a, a, a world of landmines. How do we do this thing that Jesus is saying, I have fulfilled the law? So see, we can't simply say, well, Jesus died on the cross, He took all the sins of our lives, and now we can just do whatever we want to do. Instead, He's calling us to something else. And if we hearken back to that Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we find that what He's saying is, I'm showing you what it looks like to listen to God. I'm showing you what it looks like to follow God's plan. And in that, it changes, it really changes everything. But the law feels ugly. The law feels dangerous. And that's because we each hear the law in two very real ways. In one way, the law helps us discern God's will. To know these things. To hear them. And to know how to be loving in this moment, even if they don't feel like it's loving. So it, it, it helps us to discern God's will and to know God's will. God wants to, He doesn't want you killing each other, right? So we know that. But it also exposes our failure, which we would call sin. It, it exposes when we fail to live up to the thing God created us to be and we are no longer being very good. So it does those two things, but we typically read the law with the the latter, not the former. We hear our failures. We don't always read them for so this is what God good. We'll read in, in the next couple of weeks that he goes so far as to say it's not just what you do, it's how you feel, it's how you think. You you may not actually kill somebody, but if you hold anger in your heart, it's the exact same sin. He's not still not talking about the do's and the don'ts. Now he moves into motive. Temptation. This is where flesh and spirit battle it out. The law helps us discern God's will and it exposes our failure. And in this, what Jesus is doing and in this, what Jesus is saying is that I'm trying to bring you from this place of death back to life. This place of choosing the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm trying to dangle in front of you the tree of life so that you will have that instead. I'm trying to bring you the death and the consequence of sin to a place of redemption and life. This is the covenant that God makes with Abraham and He fulfills in Jesus. We have an invitation to listen to God. We generally like to listen to ourselves more, but we have this invitation talking about Abraham. This is what Romans 4.3 is what Paul says in Romans 4.3. He says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He listened and obeyed. He had fear of the Lord. God's way is good. He believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. In John 15.19, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus is saying, I'm demonstrating what it means to listen and obey the Father. I can't do anything if He doesn't direct me first. Which is pretty significant when Jesus is one of the three parts of the Trinity. Pretty significant that when God spoke, Scriptures tell us Jesus created. 
And yet he's saying, I can do nothing apart from the will of my Father. And we even see that in Matthew 26, verse 39, just before he's arrested. And he, and he falls on his face and he prays saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this, this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is an invitation for us to say in our daily lives, not as I will, but as you will. In many ways, Jesus is saying that He is showing us what it looks like to love God and to love others by listening to God and following what He says is good, which cannot be done simply by memorizing the Bible. This is part of what the Holy Spirit does for us. This is my invitation. Will you follow? I do think we see in a great way this place of uh, God saying, what is good is we instead of me. It is us instead of I. Because we love God and we love each other. Much of sin that we find, murder or idols or any of the other sins that we do and commit against each other is generally my benefit over your benefit. This is why God says, give to those in need. Be generous. Serve. When Jesus was trying to show His disciples, what's it going to be look like for me to be God and for you to kind of launch this whole thing out we're calling the church? And He got down on His hands and His knees and He washed their feet instead of them coronating Him with a crown. Jesus is saying it's it's us. It's us with God. And that is very good because that's what it was in the beginning. God created Adam. It was good. But there wasn't enough of an us yet. And so He created Eve. Us, not just me. We have to search out this wisdom and how to live it out. This is why the law matters. This is why we still study it. This is why we still read it. This is why we don't just say, well, that was for a time and a place and not anymore. Jesus won't let us do that. Jesus said, I'm fulfilling it. I'm not doing away with it. This is why in Deuteronomy 6, we read this this instruction to the nation of Israel, which you do with this law, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so, you know, 2022 um, language, you will let it permeate every part of you. Parents will pass it to their children. You will live it out within your life. You will keep it right here where you see it every single day and on your hand as it directs everything you do. The law is good. There is a place where we have to honestly say we, at times, use the law to hurt others. 
You say, you are not as good as me. Which is the great failing of Christians many times. It's what the scribes and the Pharisees did. So they say these long prayers out on the street corner where the most people would hear them and would say, wow, you're so spiritual, but they were dead. There was no spirit in them. They would wear these long tassels and while everyone else's tassels would hang from their garments, theirs would drag the ground. Those guys are really love God, but they did not love God. The law had not permeated their hearts. They could get influence. They could get wealth. They could get standing in a community that was built on this law, but they themselves never embraced it. Jesus is saying, I'm showing you what it looks like when you embrace it. Embrace it. As I was working on this, we don't do a whole lot of hymns here. We do some, and often they're they're kind of re redone, worked over, and have parts of the old hymn. But this one hymn came to mind. I just want to read. I'm not going to sing it to you because I love you, and uh, I wouldn't do that to you. But some of you already know what that song is. We grew up singing "Trust and Obey." When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but His smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sign or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at His feet or we'll walk by His side in the way. What He says we will do, where He sends we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Oh, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. How I've proved Him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust Him more. Oh, for grace to trust You more. I believe that this truth, this reality of not just the supernatural, but of all creation, of all that has come before and what is coming again, is one of the reasons... Jesus would couch many of His teachings in this simple saying, let those who have ears, let them hear. Because fear is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is the tree of life that brings blessing. That wisdom comes from God. And so thankfully when we lack it, the Scriptures tell us we can ask God and He will give it. This does not mean that some hidden knowledge or some 
secret of the universe is really the point of all Christianity. No, it is the guiding of God into the place and to the living out of what it means to have been created by Him in the beginning. We would rule with Him. We would reign with Him. We would manage this wonderful creation and He would walk with us and be with us. But we had to choose. We will always choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but Jesus has come so that we can experience the tree of life again. To hear from God. To walk from God. To live as God created us to live. And to experience that in eternal life. I don't know um, how you'll leave. That's all I have for this for today. I There are so many other places we could go and some of you are you know, kind of theological buffs would be like, yeah, but what about all these other you know, principles about salvation and atonement and propitiation? and All of that fits. We can't cover all that today. In the vast big picture, He's inviting us to know and to follow Him. And in our inability to do that, He has provided His Son who has taken our sin so that we can do that again. And what He has given us today that we know we can have right now is the Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us and and reveals to us these truths. But one day He's coming back. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. We won't struggle with the same darkness and brokenness and problems we have today. But that day's not today. Maybe it will be later today, but it's not right this moment. That is good. God is good. And His creation is good. Let us not listen to the serpent who twists what is good because it feels good to us. And it's really not. Father, I, uh, I thank You for Your patience with Your creation. Thank You that even though Adam and Eve walked away and yet You still pursued us. I thank You that even as a nation of Israel walked away and yet You still pursued them. Even as we today at times walk away and You continue to pursue us. That we would, we would see and experience Your wisdom. I pray for those in this room who have been the the victim of the do and don't theology of Christianity that says you better not do the don'ts or we're going to let everybody know. Father, I pray that we would experience a, a, a new life and a rejuvenation that happens within us as a result. I pray that we would be a people that goes, go out and love well so that we can help to create fertile soil so that when the Gospel enters into their life, it takes root and it grows strong. It bears fruit. Father, I thank You for Your forgiveness of our sins. And I pray that we would not rest in that forgiveness. We would commit to following Your way instead. But in our inability to do that as Jesus did, thank You for giving us that forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, so we're going a little longer today. We're going to do one more song. During this song, we'll give you the opportunity to do a couple of things. We've got a lot going on in people's lives. Maybe you didn't even hear a word I just said because you're just solely consumed with something happening in your life. We want to take this, this, these next few minutes as an opportunity just to come up and pray, to give that to God, to say, God, I, I want this wisdom. I want to hear from you. 
I want to know how to love in this situation. God, I just need you to work in my life. I'm going to give you the you can you can pray right where you are. You can come up and kneel. You can do whatever you'd like. But you can also come up and grab um, one of our uh, communion cups. And as soon as this song is over, we're going to take it and then we're going to be done. Spend this time however you need it in these next few minutes. Know that God is pursuing us and offering us this wisdom at this very moment.